I just prayed that if we have people who are, who are not well and we need to be praying for them. And I, I'm certainly not uh, in any way uh, trying to uh, minimize that. But you know what we would really love to all have? We'd love to have healthy bodies, wouldn't we? Uh, can you remember one of your better day, your best day when you when you, your body you were not conscious of your body you just went about you got up you just went through everything and your schedule you went where you had to go you took care of things problems came up and you just went through your day and you weren't you weren't conscious of your heart your lungs or whatever now you young people think well hey I live that way every day <laughs> congratulations to you. <laughs> and enjoy it while it lasts. But a, a, healthy, a healthy body is indeed, it's a good thing. It's a gift from God. Well, now what we're going to be seeing in this passage this morning is the importance of a healthy body. I'm switching, I'm switching going in now into the body, namely the body of Christ and what that, how it is presented to us in this passage. And I want to read to you the verses three through five. There will be some other passages that I'm going to be reading along this line, but I want to read this to you. I won't make too many comments. I'll keep them briefly brief, but I want you to look there with me, Romans in chapter 12 and verse 3. Here's what we've seen thus far. In Romans chapter 12 and 1 and 2, it's an enormously important passage. What the Apostle Paul is doing, he is saying uh, with the... the, the the confidence that, uh, of an apostle writing with full authority that uh, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. We're not to be conformed to this world. There has to be a change in the way we look at life because of what Christ has done for us. And then he proceeds when he says this in chapter 12 and verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I'm reading from the new American Standard. It just happens to be what I have in some notes before me. Those of you who have the English Standard Version make the adjustments. I, before through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now I want you to just take a moment and just look at this. Uh, you have your Bibles in front of you. That's very important too. Uh, I get conflicted when I, when I put scripture up on the screen. I think it helps to see it up there. But there's just no substitute for having the scriptures right before you. And you can look down upon them. And I want you to do that now. Here's the way the passage moves. The passage moves in this direction. You can see that little word for. I'll come back to it later on. That's an important step forward. It's a hinge word. And what he's doing now with this word for, he is making a conclusion based on two things that he's just said. We saw those in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then he establishes a principle in verse 3. It's sort of the header. It's going to be something that's setting the stage now for what he's going to be doing in the following verses. And all the way down through verse 9, he's going to be speaking of the gifts of the Spirit. And he brings this up 
basically drafts on what he just said about living, making your bodies a living sacrifice and not being conformed to this world. With that said, then, he goes on to establish this principle of getting our minds right. What does a renewed mind look like? And then in verse 3, excuse me, in verse 4, he's going to give an illustration. And on that illustration that he gives, he's going to stand on the shoulders of that, and he's going to arrive at a point of truth. He's going to state, make a doctrinal statement in no uncertain terms in verse 5. So that's the way that it's going to move, and I wanted you to note that. So here's where we will go. Let me make two or three statements before we uh, put our hands upon the, hopefully you have the, the bulletin, you have the outline in the bulletin, you can follow along there, take notes if you wish to do so. I want a question, I got a few questions to ask all of us. Is it your aspiration to offer your body a living sacrifice? As this point should be settled, hopefully, if we're responding to scripture correctly, are we committed to not being conformed to this world? Do you want to be transformed to be more like Jesus Christ? Do you desire to experience a renewing of the mind? If your answer to these questions is yes, then go to work on slaying a monster. There's a monster to be slain. It's going to be mentioned in passing, but it's very important. We will deal with it, just we'll, we'll see it. The monster of pride. That's what he goes after. And there is, an, there is an antidote for this monster of pride. But if we must deal with it if we're going to take our rightful place in the body of Christ. The question then is, in a second series of questions I wish to ask us, what does, why does Paul bring up, look at the statements in this passage. He brings up the matter of pride. He brings up the matter of humility. He speaks to spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. Now remember this, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome. He's writing it from Corinth. Paul's a seasoned man now, now in world travel. You know, we can fly from the East Coast to the West Coast in a matter of hours. Paul had gone all around the Roman Lake, namely the Mediterranean, over a period of years in establishing churches, visiting churches. Had not been to, uh, he'd just come off on the end of a third missionary journey. This is probably, he's writing this somewhere around 57, 58 AD. And Paul has already spoken to the Corinthians about the importance of the body of Christ and the gifts of the Spirit as to the way the church should function. But the believer has, our, we have our transforming experience within the body of Christ, the church. How we see ourselves in the church, how we conduct ourselves in the church, that's the transforming environment in which we should be living. We're going to go there. Now, with regard to pride, I'll come back to that, but I came across this statement that sort of puts it out there for us. It's a little bit like when you go into looking at the subject of pride, stepping into the horror house. This is what one writer said with regard to pride, because Paul, you can see, he knocks it in a and in the hat when he stays, says what he does in verse 3. Pride elevates the self. It seeks to have one's worth recognized by others. Is blind to obvious personal faults. The proud person has difficulty functioning interpersonally. Since he or she does not receive or process feedback from others in a satisfactory manner. Nor does the proud person fare well in the task of being other-centered. All right. 
that's a, uh, that's a poison pill. It's, it's a reality check, and that's where the pride looks. But Paul's going after it, and he mentions this, that we ought not to be thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, and that our pursuit should be toward humility. And this humility is the, is the evidence that our minds are being renewed. Something's changing in the way we think about ourselves. That's what's happening here. And I might just say one more thing here for, before we, we look at the, at the third verse in, in a more definite way. You know, the local church, the church is a fragile thing. It is like a fragile vase. Uh, we get used to it. We have expectations of seeing the same people and having the same routines. That's not a bad thing. But then there are things that happen. <clears throat> there are circumstances that occur that make us realize uh, I'm not saying we're just now realizing this. Uh, as a pastor, I, uh, for, for 50 years, I realized this many, many years ago, that, uh, but not to the degree that which I'm aware of it now, that church is really a fragile thing. And we have to give it very careful attention. Namely, we have to look at ourselves and how we're thinking. All right, let's go to that. Let's consider this very first statement, which... Uh, when Paul says, for through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you. The very first thing that the apostle goes after, drafting on what he said about being not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. The very first thing is this, that the renewed mind is a grace conscious mind. Grace conscious. Now, if you will look down closely on the text, you're going to notice a couple of things that you could easily slide by. The first thing is you're going to notice is that when he says, through the grace given to me, to what is Paul referring here? What is this grace that's been given to him? Well, it's combined with something else, and we need to see these two and appreciate them. He said, I say. So there is some authority coming through here along with grace. Authority and grace. Why is this so important in Paul's life and in any believer's life? It would be this way. That the grace to which he's referring, I do not think he's primarily referring to saving grace. The grace that he on the Damascus Road. Oh, that's true. And Paul spoke of that often. He spoke of that in, in, in tones of this. He was the chief of sinners. And in the book of Acts, you see it laid out on more than one occasion, occasion where Paul gave his personal testimony, if you will, before uh, officials and government author governmental authorities. But this grace to which he's referring here is what God has given him as a, a set of gifts. He's gifted the Apostle Paul. That's what happened. Now, let's just, let me walk you through these statements here that I've laid out in, in front of you. And I, I want to stay on that path because it helps us to follow the thought. The, the, this mind... This grace-conscious mind is a mind that characterizes the apostolic authority of Paul. And what Paul is giving allegiance to and acknowledgement of is this. He would not be who he is, where he was, and be doing what he was doing, namely writing this letter to the Roman Christians, if it had not been a totally undeserved favor from God toward him. That's what he's speaking of. And... You know, this is connected with authority. Paul had authority by virtue of the fact that he was, he was 
an apostle. He was the 13th apostle. He says that even in 1 Corinthians, out of, out of due season, he was proclaimed to be an apostle. He saw the resurrected Christ on the Damascus road. He saw him. That's one of the qualifications for being an apostle. But, and and Paul, Paul was conscious of that. And let me just pause and say this about this, this same matter. This mind encompasses the deliverance from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful truth and I don't, I don't wanna, because we're going to go past it and go to something else, I don't wanna minimize it in the least. That God in his grace comes to us. No matter what we've done, no matter who we are, no matter what sins we've committed, no matter of our parentage, our upbringing, whatever it is, when we came to that place where God's Holy Spirit convicted us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, and we realized that we were sinners, we couldn't do anything to please God, we had nothing to bring Him, then He made that light come on and we saw ourselves in need of Christ, and by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And when we met Jesus Christ, He immediately clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God, as it were, through his son, he said to us, he said at that moment, now you belong to me. I'm yours in your mind forever. That's what it means when you come to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was not minimizing that, but he's looking at something else. Not only did God do that for him in Christ, God gave him a unique position in the church. He had a gift package. How many gifts I don't know, but I'm sure the gift of teaching. I'm, oh, I'm sure of the gift of apostleship. You know that though when he says that, there is something that must happen when you have such an extraordinary position of apostleship. And that is to be aware of the fact that you didn't deserve it and that it is not to be wielded as an office by which you are using a leverage for power. That's not the New Testament. It is God's giving the giving to the apostle. Now we're going to be going into the gifts next Sunday, Lord willing, because there are what, about seven of them that are mentioned in verses six through eight. And we'll open that up later. But here is where the apostle Paul is. And what he's saying is that the mind enables, this mind, this renewed mind enables the believer to function effectively in the body of Christ. And that's what Paul, I think, is implying here when he says this grace that was given to me. This grace of what? Apostleship. And therefore, he could communicate to them. And so when he said, I say, that was not just giving an opinion or advice. It was apostolic authority. It was from God and the power of the Holy Spirit giving the exact words that he wanted. Well, let's honor that. Now, I could pause and say two things here quickly. We need to make a distinction and understand this distinction between the body of Christ and the local church. Uh, we sometimes, we, we speak of the local church quite often, don't we, as the body of Christ. But technically, it's not the body of Christ, namely that uh, corporate group that all of believers in all time and all places since the cross who make up the church, it's been theology class, we always had discussions about this. Well, they, some call it the invisible church. Well, invisible? Are these people invisible? No, they're not. It's just that at this moment, 
the body of Christ goes well beyond these walls and goes all around this planet to believers everywhere. You know, by the way, this is, uh, I wondered where this mic could fit in, and I think maybe this is just to give us an awareness of that. Thank uh, Susanna for printing up these calendars. They're very helpful. And I was taken by this second on the back of it, pray for the persecuted church. I'm talking about the body of Christ, the larger church, just so we don't forget it, neglect it, and appreciate what's involved. This is from Pakistan, January 19th, 2023. Evangelism team opposed, threatened with violence. An evangelism team based in Peshawar, Pakistan, conducted outreach in many, into many cities in the Khyber region in the summer of 2022. Some of the materials distributed uh, conveyed to, uh, during the outreach were discovered by Islamic religious leaders. And in an ulama, this is a meeting of the Islamic religious legal scholars they convened to organize against the evangelism. Since the outreach efforts, the members of the evangelism team have all received threatening calls they were then dispersed to other areas for their safety after hearing that the police were searching for them. This team asked for prayers that the evil plans against God's people would be changed and that those who received the evangelism materials, even the Islamic scholars who reviewed it, would trust in Christ in the process. There are brothers and sisters in Christ in Peshawar, in Pakistan, doing work. Well, we would not hear this on the news and maybe... In some sense, you don't want too much publicity for those in these very dif difficult uh, places, dangerous places. But I'm just saying, and remember to pray for that. Thanks for those prayer requests that are put on the back of that prayer calendar. But here we are, the body of Christ. Now, but what do we have in the local church? We do have kind of a, a microcosm. Uh, we don't have... We don't have all the believers, obviously, in the body of Christ here, but we do have a good representation. However, the difference is this. There may be someone in the local church, even in this congregation this morning, and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. You're here. I'm thankful for that. Uh, maybe you're here. You, it's really a matter of your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. It has not really been settled yet. That's possible. That's not true in the body of Christ. But in the local church, that can be a possibility. So I will assume, though, that as Paul does in writing his letters, have you not noticed this? He speaks of brothers. You know, we share this DNA, this spiritual relationship. He is assuming that we are believers in an organized fashion coming to worship him as we do in the local church. All right. With that said, I want to make one more statement with regard to this renewed mind is a grace-conscious mind. I want to remind you, I don't want to linger, but I want to remind you that we are living in a day when the grace consciousness, the sense of God's authority and our smallness and our need for God, it's walked all over, it's dismissed, it isn't, we're living in an arrogance, an arrogant age. And we are doing everything. We're racing to the bottom and finding ways to erase God from our cultural life. All right. Uh, this is uh, not to be misunderstood. Uh, we say, well, should we go back and try to save the culture and get it back to the way it was? I think the way to do that is 
tied up in what we're going to be seeing in, in the rest of Romans chapter 12. But the point is this, is that we're living in a time where thinking, where dispositions, where attitudes, relationships, I don't need to go through the, paper, the news with you is to just pick it up and see what dastardly, awful, evil things, terrible things. They've been going on since the beginning of time. I know that. I wasn't born yesterday. Um, I'm not saying these are the necessarily things that have not, sins that have not been committed before. But what I'm saying is, is that what's happening now, though, is that technology has taken us almost to warp speed in our race to the bottom in corruption and defiance and rejection of God's creation order, Romans chapter 1. And that we have ways of, the, in the, uh, the technology, I'm by technology, I mean the social media, the, this, this thing. Is this not altered life uh, in so many ways? In some good ways. Matter of fact, it's here for me because it's given me the time. And, uh, but with the smartphones, with the internet, or computers, and Facebook, and Instagram, and TikTok, and whatever else. My grandkids try to keep me up on what these, these things are and how they're functioning. But these things, this technology, has, I think has had an effect. I'm not the first to get to this idea, but I think it does make sense that we have this sense that we're sovereign, that we can bend the world to suit our own individual desires. We have access to so much knowledge, and so we think we're sovereign over everything. And that we're all powerful. And we've got this, uh, this raw material at our disposal simply to bend at our wills. Access to the information and the knowledge, we can shape it. And with that goes this power over moral problems. And that we can solve whatever, whatever sexual diseases are rampant. That's something that uh, the papers don't make much of, but it's rampant in this. You know, I said, but we'll find an antibiotic. We'll find something for it. We'll find a vaccine for this. We'll find a vaccine for that. I thank God for those vaccines that really work and whatever medicine is there that really works. But, oh, how can we can get ourselves deluded into the thinking that we're just raw material. The creator is not there. By the way, this is why the transgender movement is making such headway into our culture. Is that because beneath that is the thinking we're autonomous. There is no God. We are the ones who determine what is reality by the raw material. The raw material mean the body, meaning the body. Biological sex does not indicate anything. That's just raw material. So don't get, uh, don't get locked into that just because you were born declared a male or a female. So you see, this is the way things have gone in thinking. It, it, uh, the younger people may not uh, be fully hit with this reality, but that's what's happening. Now I'm going to leave that because I want to get on into what the apostle now is going to begin, is going to say with regard to this issue of the humility that's to come out of this. The renewed mind, not only is a grace conscious mind, I am who I am. I have what I have. I can function the way I am to function as a Christian. I have not deserved it in any measure, in any way. But the renewed mind is therefore a humble mind. Go forward with me in this. I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. What's that? That's the monster pride in the closet. He 
comes out all too often. But to think so as to have sound judgment. Now, there are interesting play on words here. I'll call attention to that as we go, go along with this. But here's the, here's the issue. We've got to think right about ourselves. That's where he's going. That's the renewed mind. I don't think about myself. I shouldn't think about myself in the way that I thought about myself before I came to Jesus Christ. Well, how is this? Every believer in Jesus Christ has been graced in multiple ways. Now, this is the way Paul actually began in the first verse of chapter 12. Did he not? Look at all the mercies that God has shown to us. Mercies. Multiplied, multiplied, multiplied. And now having emphasized that he has this apostolic authority by God's grace, and now he's going to show that every believer has this experience of his or her own gifts as well. And so here is where he takes us. This concern of his is that grace, this grace is emphasized here, is the grace of spiritual giftedness. Get that, please. He's talking about spiritual giftedness as using the word grace in verse, in verse 3 because it's going to bring it on down into the various gifts that have been distributed. Humility is bound up in the very first words on this passage. This matter of pride and authority and gifts. The bottom line, humility, humility. Don't be thinking of yourself higher than you ought to think. So, now, let's just take a little brief uh, excursion here. Let's think about this matter of pride. I want to deal with that statement. Let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. The word that Paul uses here, when he says that we ought not to think more highly one of, of himself, is the, the word is an interesting word. He's, he's, he uses this word, I'm, try, I'm not trying to dazzle you with any, any Greek or anything, but I think it would help to appreciate the passage more. He uses the word think here f uh, four times. Phroneo, P-H-R-O-N-E-O, which you transliterate it, phroneo. And, but he uses a prefix on this word in verse when he says not to think more highly of oneself. It's the word that takes it and injects it with kind of a hyper idea. Actually, that's the preposition, huper, hyper. Don't think hyper thinking of yourself. Over the top thinking of yourself. Don't go there. Don't overestimate yourself. Beware of that. It's, it'll be the death of you in more ways than one. So... That's what he's saying with this, and he's speaking, therefore, of this pride. Now, what is pride? It's the enemy of the moral will of God. It's a symptom of conformity to the world. The first priority in the Christian life is dealing with oneself. It's not out there, it's in here. We might think that we must think right about ourselves. How the new mind thinks about itself, this is a bridge that Paul's building over to this metaphor to the body. We're going to get to that, the body of Christ. Romans 12, 3 says, well, pride is this not an isolated issue. It's central in the fight against sin. We've got a fight on our hands. It's pride. Romans eleven eighteen. do not be arrogant toward the branches. Paul's already said this 
to the Gentiles and the Jews in the church, seeking to help them understand one another, getting along, living in harmony as they should be. Not to be, not be conceited, but to fear. Chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own estimation. Another warning about it. And then chapter 12, verse 16. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Chapter 14, in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? So here this is then. This monster of pride. Now, I have to, you know, this is one of those things that deserves actually a series of sermons if you want to really unpack this. I happened to come across some good sources yesterday. I might pass on this past week. It reminded me of if you have the book uh, Mere Christianity or if you have that book by C.S. Lewis. Go to chapter 8 and read the, one, the chapter on the great sin. It'll knock you back on your heels. And I'll refer to that and deal with that to, for those who get the morning minute. That'll come up tomorrow. But here it is. But this is our age. This pride thing. Oh, my, we've got this new little acronym. G-O-A-T. Somebody asked me recently, well, what's that? Well, we used to say, if you were the goat in something, that means you really blew it and messed up. Oh, the greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. Oh, we just love to elevate and blow people up in importance and so forth. And the revolution in selfhood, it's everywhere. Expressive individualism, that's where we are. The choice of identity. Oh, I can determine, who can tell me who I am? No one but me. I will determine my own identity. It's all over the place. So, the renewed mind means deliverance from self, a self-centered mind. It recognizes the power of pride. Now, I hasten to say this. When you come to Christ and you're regenerated, you receive the Holy Spirit and you get a new nature and the old nature's back is broken. The old nature, though, does not leave us. We do not live without an old nature. It just does not have the authoritative position that it did. It's more like in guerrilla activity now. It's there and it seeks to re it's lost ground. So there is a fight that we do have and we're aware of it. Now, to encourage you, let you think, well, is this hopeless from the beginning that I'm really an ultimate proud person and it's uh, uh, not much I can do about it? No, it can be whipped. It can be defeated. But it's, you, you, it's always going to be lurking somewhere in the shadows, just being mindful of it and putting your focus on being mindful of God. That's the best way to go after it. But so keep this in mind. So we, we can overestimate ourselves, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And we can underestimate ourselves as well. There are those, and if you've been around Christians a while, you can see that there are some who think that's the way to deal with overthinking yourself. It's just underthink. Well, I can't do anything. Ah, and then reminds me of, some might remember this person, uh, the poor soul, Jackie Gleason, for the younger generation, ask your parents or your grandparents about that. And this was poor soul, just always kind of abject and down and defeated and not sure of himself, lacking self-confidence and all this. And some Christians think, well, to be humble then is that you've got to adopt this persona. You've got to kind of put yourself down. You can't do anything. You're not as smart as other people, and so on and on. That's not the way in which you fight pride. 
You're fighting it with, with paper swords. It won't work. And it simply is another form of pride. But pride is essentially this. It's a conspiratorial felony against the sovereign God of the universe. That's what it is. It's ugly. It's horrific. And pride, among other things, it has a competitive streak. Ah, you know, I thought about this, and it really unsettled me. I was rereading uh, the, the chapter by, by C.S. Lewis on the great sin and talking about competitive. Well, I knew that I've got a competitive streak. Oh, no. I've got, to, you know, I've got enough problems, uh, and, you know, I'm no pride and vainglory and all that packaged with that. So just to be competitive, that's not what we mean here. Pride in competitive sense is that you're in competition with other people who are proud. So you're trying to out-proud other people. Well, it doesn't mean that you're not, I mean, Paul speaks elsewhere about boasting of the Lord. That let him, 1 Corinthians 3, 131, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boasting in the Lord is the expression of one's confidence in the Lord. So we're not saying that any kind of competition is, is somehow sinful. So here it is then. There is this pride. Someone has put it this way, that pride is essentially deicide. It's, a, it's an attack upon God, seeking to burn him in effigy. And it, it, it's, it's an awful, awful thing and shows up in subtle ways. I, for those of you who want to go with this further and you'd like to pray through a little more deeply with this issue, uh, go, go to the book of the Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. You're familiar with that book. I know I sound bookish at times in the pulpit, but I think people need to read and uh, good things. And there's a really helpful chapter in there on pride. And then another one, right drafting on it, on self-centeredness by Jerry Bridges, Respectable Sins. But here's this, all I want to say at this point is that what we have to deal with is to deal with this pride, that it lurks in the shadows and it'll show up in subtle ways and we can overcome it. And the humility, or we wouldn't be told, what? What are we to do? Well, you look back at what the apostle says in this verse. He says, so then what we are to do? We are to think and have sound judgment. You see that word? That's the word phroneo again. But he has a different prefix on it this time. It's one word in the Greek, but it's a compound word. And it, it, it literally means sober, you see, sober judgment. Not intoxicated. This is the way it is. That... When you overestimate yourself in pride, it's intoxication, intoxication with yourself. And he's saying, don't be inebriated. Think clearly. Stay in touch with reality. Don't overestimate yourself. Who do you think you are? So actually we could say you know, self-centeredness, narcissism is really a form of insanity. And uh, that's a wake-up call. It's a form of insanity because we don't really understand how things as they, what they really are and how to deal with them. All right, quickly, let me go now to this third movement I see in the passage. And it also comes up in verse three. He says, where he says that we have this uh, giftedness, he uses the terminology measurement, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. The humble mind, understands that all natural abilities, all natural abilities and spiritual gifts are from God. All right, let's step into this for a little bit. What's this mean? 
It means several things. Follow me. I'll make three statements here, and I'll track a little bit on each of them, and I'll tell you when it, as I do them. First of all, we are to have a balanced viewpoint of our place in the body of Christ. That's what he's what saying, being sober-minded. We are to be in our right mind. Arrogance and pride takes you out of your right mind. You're not thinking straight. Careful, this is what the Bible speaks so often of self-control. You know, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. All special gifts come from God. Whatever you've been given. And so, the realistic estimate of oneself. Secondly, ask not then what the body of Christ can do for you, but what you can do for the body of Christ. And I want to treat that little phrase, that statement, to each a measure of faith. You see it in the text? To each a measure of faith. What's he saying here? The word for measure there is the word metron, where our word metrics comes from it, meter. It's a measure, the idea of measurement. What he's saying, I'll cut right to the chase, I think what he's saying, because believe me, there are different interpretations of this passage, but I think this is most consistent with the context that what he's saying is that God has measured out to every one of us the spiritual gift package that we should have, one or more. He's measured it out, and he's measured out the means by which that gift will be made effective and whereby you will function most effectively in the body of Christ in the church. Do you see that? It's like this. All right. When you came to Christ, when you came to Christ, God poured into you by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's what he distributed the gifts. He poured into you your gift set, your spiritual gifts. Now you think, well, what is mine? Next week, uh, we'll see some of those, just some of them. There's more than just the seven in the next, next passage. But he's poured this out. He's measured it out. Now, what's that say? Don't start comparing yourself then to somebody. Well, I don't, I can't do this or I can't do that. Or if I, Lord, why? hey, go back. For, you can go back further than just spiritual gifts. You could say this just in common grace that whatever natural gifts we have, those are two different things. No two of us in here this morning have the same skill set. We, can, we think different ways. We can do uh, some of you mechanically minded, uh, some are not so mechanically minded. Uh, my friend Roger were here, I would share this humor with him, but I just happened to look at the far side calendar and it showed a picture of a people who were meeting for the mechanically declined. And it, sh and it showed on the, on the screen, it was a slide, and it showed this screw with one slot, and then it showed the screwdriver coming to this. So that's lesson number one in the mechanically declined. All right, just a point of wasted humor there, but uh, what we have different gifts. Some of you are mechanically inclined. You are, some of you are more conceptually inclined. You can see things. You can see things in, uh, dimensionally better. That, that happens in geometry class. I remember that very well. I thought, I thought some part of my brain wasn't working. There were those in the class who were seeing things there and I, those theorems that they were de developing and I was saying, so what? <laughs> and 
I was trying to get, get that. And I, I, I can't stay on this, but please understand, we're gifted in everyone here this morning. Young people, young people, please. God has, if you're in Christ, God has given you some natural gifts. He's given you spiritual gifts. And in your growing up years, you begin to see those things happening. And that's why you've got to have the right voices, the right people around you. It's why you need to be hearing God's word. If you don't, you're going to be listening to the culture. And I'm going to tell you, if there were ever a dangerous time to be living in a culture in America, it's now. Because there are voices that are lying, 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 lying. And so this is what he said. The Holy Spirit gave you your gifts in. And now you have, I have responsibility. All right? Now, I want to take a third thing. I said there were three comments I was going to make. The third one is this. The renewed mind, the renewed mind is a mind that thinks of oneself in accordance with the specific gifts or talents God has given. Now, I need to pause here and say something. Just a word of, of you consider it warning, a caveat. We went through a phase, it was back in the 90s, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think it was in the 90s, where spiritual gifts became a fad. There were books written, workshops. Oh, everybody, Christians were falling all over themselves to find out what their spiritual gift or gifts were. Well, I'm not disparaging the importance of some recognition. I mean, he's saying, Paul's saying here, you come to some understanding the measurement of faith uh, to know yourself according to how God has equipped you and, and develop, that, uh, develop that gift. But wait a minute. I'll just give you a little bit of uh, shop-worn wisdom on this thing. You get busy in the local church. You just start serving the Lord and you're, however God has gifted you will begin to emerge. You won't have to go to a clinic you won't have to take a course. You won't have to read a book. <clears throat> It'll, and, and there'll be people around you who will verify that in one way or another. Because there'll be ways in which you will, your interest, your desires, your effectiveness, it begins to show up. But we get ourselves into trouble. One of the troubles is, is that one of the gifts is teaching. And teaching is obviously an in front of people gift. And so you think, well, is that the gift in the body of Christ? Absolutely not. It's important. I didn't know I was given this gift early on in my Christian life. I look back on it now and see, oh, that's why you know, I had this interest, that interest, and so forth. But let me tell you, this, these gifts, we all work together. We cooperate together, function together. All right, that said, I must come to this final statement because we've got to work with it. You're still with me now. Our spiritual gifts, and I want us to look at verses four and five. What did I say about them? Well, first of all, notice in verse, uh, uh, in verse, verse four, where Paul says, for just as we have many, have mem many members, and in one body, all members do not have the same function. All right, members. Let's take it this way. Our spiritual gifts are a reminder of our interdependence in the body of Christ. Hear that word? Not independence, interdependence. Do you understand what I mean by that? 
interdependence. That we, we depend upon one another in a legitimate sense as we function in the body of Christ. And we're not to be uh, just uh, recluses and hermits or we're going to do it ourselves. It's the unity and diversity issue. Now, I've got to pause here and do some necessary warning again. Try to keep us all alert to the way the culture wants to take us, the way the winds are blowing, the way the tide's coming in. And we have now a false gospel that has come on strong, powerful, and it has invaded every institution in our land. And if you don't realize that, you're late to the game. <laughs> Everything's being influenced by this. What you hear with the news, what you previously thought were reliable sources, whether it's school systems or sports, and certainly government, the military, every institution, the church, and it goes by these three letters, D-E-I, diversity, equity, inclusion. If you haven't noticed these words lately, wake up. It's out there. And I just played, I did a little word play on myself. That's, there are two kinds of being woke. The wokeism is invaded us, but there is a biblical awakening to where there is discern, our discerning powers. The measure of this faith that God's given us, part of this is understanding the world in which we live and knowing God's law and being able to see its finer points and how to apply it. I'll just say three things with regard to this woke theology, this wokeism. The very first is that it is, it has, as I've already stated, it swept through our nation with rep rapidity and with devastating revolts. That's all of uh, results. Secondly, with its advocacy of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it seeks preferential treatment for some groups over others. Right away, that ought to put you on the alert because what we're to be doing in the body of Christ as Christians, we don't live by preferential treatment toward one another. We treat one another as equals in the body of Christ. So what this is, this false gospel, this false gospel of uh, this wokeism, it's tricking people making them think that this somehow is the virtuous, virtuous high road to follow. It is not. It's diversity without, tr diversity without truth. It's equity without truth. It is inclusion without truth. It's not the truth of the gospel. Thirdly, this woke, woke the heresy, I will say, the heresy of this woke theology, it denies the doctrine of sin and salvation. It reduces systems, excuse me, it reduces evil to systems that can be seen in institutions rather than the location of evil in the human heart. And I could take about six different ways to show you how this is a false gospel, but I can't stay there. I want to get on and finish the rest of this passage because notice what the biblical paradigm is. What is, what's coming through in verses four and five? There's unity in the body of Christ. 
There's diversity in the body of Christ. There is harmony in the body of Christ. First of all, unity. One body. Now this unity, the human body, it's an organic unity. And each, the way the body works in coordination with itself is an amazing thing. It is, you know, it was the miracle of God who made this possible. How our bodies work when they're working right. Even when we're not doing very well, they really work. You know, it's amazing that we heal. <laughs> and the, the body is, God is built into, in this fallen world, an ability to recover from many things. So we have this. So each body part is essential in this. You have the nervous system. You have the blood system. You have the muscular system. We're not like a train. Well, you know, the engine and the coal car, whatever it used to be, other engines, boxcars, you know, all down the line. We're not like a train. We are an organism. Our physical bodies and our spiritual bodies. We are unified by the work of the Holy Spirit and bring us into this relationship to one another. And then there is diversity in the body of Christ. Many members. Every single part must be subordinated to the head and all these body, body parts work together. You know, Paul, this is actually Paul's favorite metaphor for describing the church. He speaks of the church as a family. He speaks of the church as a building. He speaks of the church like as, as fellow soldiers but he speaks of the church most of, often as what? A body. He uses the human body. And it, it works like this. Yes, there are different parts of the body. Some are not as visible as others. This is what he told the Corinthians. But <clears throat> not to worry, not to worry. Listen, God's given you the gift that you have. What if you are a toe on the body, in the body of Christ? Now, I got interested in toes. So I just went online and I says, the function of toes on the body. I got through reading that and said, thank you, Lord, that I have toes. But look what we do to the toes. We keep socks on them. And then on top of socks, we put shoes. I don't have any idea what your little toe looks like. But I can see what your ears look like, what your eyes look like, what your hair looks like, your size and so forth. But I have no idea. Unless, you know, unless a lady's got sandals on or something and you've had a pedicure and the toes are really looking good. But toes, we wouldn't have balance. We couldn't, we couldn't run. I mean, even with one toe, I read further, you lose a big toe, you're in some real trouble. Now, all the articles went on to say you can overcome it and buy orthotics and get the right shoes, but a big toe. All right, enough about toes. I'm simply saying that what is given here is the way God's made us in the body of Christ. And we all have these gifts and we function in different ways, but we work in a coordinated way. And then there is to be harmony in the body of Christ. <clears throat> that Self-centeredness is diabolical. It's terrible. Each particular part of the body is to function as a part of the whole. And you know, it's like the body. When the body is working right, the physical body, is, well, I started out saying this, we're not really that much aware of it, are we? We, we 
get out, we walk out the door. Whoa, my legs are working fine. My toes are doing their job. You know, I'm seeing, I'm hearing. You know, I'm, I don't have indigestion. I don't feel nauseous. Uh, my blood pressure is fine. We don't, we just go on. We live life. In the body of Christ, now coming back to my metaphor, the body of Christ, that there is this harmony as believers are functioning together, are respecting one another, working together with one another, appreciating one another. No one is seeing oneself as more important than the next person. These are the things. So, I'll bring it down to this. We are to be individually healthy. Are you? Are you individually healthy? I'm not talking about your physical health. But uh, is there some, perhaps uh, some lingering attitude, a disposition? Maybe it's that, sh that short temper that just keeps getting you in trouble. Or maybe it's fear. Fear just eats your lunch. Uh, we, we, we fight these things together, anger, so on. And then there's that pride monster, pride wanting to compete with other people who are trying to compete for, for, for attention, for appearance sake. I want people to think well of me because of the way I look or how I speak, or what, I'm, what I'm doing, my place in life. No, 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 no. These are the things that make for an unhealthy individual. And then when they get brought into a body, they can be contagious. They can do things to other people. And we get all kinds of friction and disagreements that don't get handled biblically. And then I'll say this one other thing. Is that therefore what we're after in a church is to have a healthy state of body life. And you know what it is? It's, it's for the individual. Be ye holy for I am holy. Holiness. So it's, it's simple, complex and simple at the same time. I want to go in the direction God wants me to go. I want to deal with those issues in my heart and life and habits that I have and ways of thinking that are wrong and they need to be corrected. Oh God, I pray that you'll renew my mind that I will think of others as those for whom I should serve. You know, I could run through some questions. Am I overwhelmed with God's grace and his goodness? That's a good sign. That's a good sign of health. Are you overwhelmed with that? Uh, do you see yourself as better than others? Or do you see yourself as equal with others? That's where you want to be. Equal with one another. Am I seeking to build others up in the faith? Is that my primary goal? Or am I all caught up in this, oh my, we've skidded, I breezed right by it. Couldn't deal with it. But all this, the self-esteem movement. Getting significance. Oh, I must babble anything to enhance my significance. Self-esteem. Oh my, these things have come in and have done great damage to God's people. Because it just puts all that attention and fans the flames of pride which are already there. And it feeds it. Whereas we're to be thinking of others in the interest of others. So that is what Paul is saying in this section. So let's look to the Lord that he will use this. Get the wheels turning. Talk to the Lord somehow, some way today and, and, and say, Lord, what is it that I need to go to? Let's pray about it right now. Will you pray with me?